0: Hey, it's Steven. Uh, Before we jump into the show, I'm hoping to grab just a couple minutes of your time for some housekeeping. I want to let you know about some changes, some really good changes that are happening around here this fall. Firstly, Postscript Media, the company I co-founded and run, the company that makes this show alongside Canary Media, is rebranding and launching a business-to-business news site and research practice in October called Latitude Media. We've hired some top journalists and analysts, and we're going to be covering business and tech trends across... Advanced grid technologies, artificial intelligence, carbon removal, long-duration storage, virtual power plants, microgrids, and more. You can go to LatitudeMedia.com to find out more. We've got a teaser there uh, previewing the launch coming in October. Of course, we're still going to be partnering with Canary Media on the Carbon Copy and on Catalyst with Shale Khan this show is actually turning into a deeper partnership between us and the Canary Media Reporters. We're shifting the format a bit to be more of a roundtable-style show so we can explain more topics and trends in the news in a lively, conversational way. So you're going to hear that shift in format this week. And finally, that brings us to two events we've been telling you about coming up in October. There's Transition AI New York for all you East Coasters and Canary Live Bay Area for those of you on the West Coast, hosted by our team at Latitude Media Transition AI is the premier event charting how AI is going to shape utilities, renewables and storage developers, energy traders, EV charging integrators, and more. And there's like 50 plus use cases depending on how you define a use case. There's hundreds of vendors in this space with AI embedded in their product set, and it's worth billions of dollars. And we're tracking it closely. So Transition AI New York is a one-day conference and workshop in Manhattan on October 19th. It'll feature top experts from Microsoft, GE Digital, AES, National Grid, Oracle, and a range of founders, executives, and academics who are building AI strategies right now. You, our podcast listeners, You get 10% off your ticket. Go to transition-ai.com or follow the link in the show notes. Use the code PSPODS10 for a 10% discount. And we'll see you all October 19th in Manhattan for Transition AI New York. And for all of you in the Bay Area, I know there are a lot of you, our partners at Canary Media are putting together a live event on October 3rd. It's going to be in Berkeley at uh, Freight and Salvage. And it'll feature a roster of top journalists and experts who are handpicked by the Canary Media editorial team. They're going to dive into all things Energy Transition, Inflation Reduction Act, tech uh, innovation, and policy. And uh, if you really liked the conversation we recently played with Ramez Nam and David Roberts from Canary Live Seattle, I think you're really going to like the show they have planned for you. At Canary Live Bay Area. So uh, you can get your tickets now. We've worked with them on a couple of these events, and they almost always sell out. Uh, So go get your ticket. Again, it's on October 3rd in Berkeley. We've got a link in the show notes for Canary Live Bay Area. And uh, that's it. Thanks for making it through this lengthy housekeeping. We've got a ton of cool stuff planned for you this fall that we wanted to make sure you're aware of. And uh, now on to the episode. (laughs) From the studios of Postscript Media and
1: Canary Media.
0: So now that people are uh, going to hear you guys more regularly, they're they're going to get familiar with not just your voices but your verbal ticks. Anything you want to flag for us right now before we start? Um, uh, maybe so sort of, uh, Yeah. Mm.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I think I tend to go speak relatively low, and then when I get excited, go really high pitch, which is a nightmare for audio editors.
0: Well, that's what we have a good engineer for. Uh, well, if you're not aware of them now, you soon will be. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Renewables and electric vehicles are on a tear. They'll soon likely attract $2 trillion in yearly investment, but global emissions have not peaked. So what are the new frontiers of technologies that will make renewables more valuable and draw down emissions at the speed needed? This week, we're going to reflect on that question coming out of a major American conference where our editors were covering emerging tech. Then the battery recycling boom is on. It's attracting billions of dollars in investment. Will it address supply chain security and a looming waste problem? Finally, Hawaii's difficult transition away from coal. Why couldn't it build renewables and batteries fast enough to fill the gap? That's coming right up.
4: The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a Frontier Forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, cost, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes, or go to latitudemedia.com slash events.
0: Uh, we're joined this week by Jeff St. John, Julian Spector, and Lisa Martin Jenkins. Uh, Jeff is the Director of News and Special Projects at Canary Media. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Julian Spector is a senior reporter at Canary Media. Hey, Julian. How's it going? And with us is a new voice in New York City. It's Lisa Martin Jenkins. She is editor of Latitude Media, the new B2B climate tech publication that we're launching in October. And uh, she hopped into a studio between meetings at Climate Week. Hey, Lisa.
3: Hey, Stephen. It's nice to be here.
0: So our listeners are familiar with Jeff and Julian, and and you're new to our listeners. I just want to start with, like, where did you come from? What are you doing at The Latitude?
3: Yeah, so I've been working as a climate journalist for several years now. Um, I most recently covered climate tech for the late, great protocol. May it rest in peace. And I'm now going to be an editor for our new site. Really excited about that. We'll be launching in about a month. So it's great to see you all. I'm really stoked to be here.
0: Yeah, so you and Julian were over in Las Vegas uh, at RE Plus, and that's what we're going to talk about first, because there are some really important takeaways that feed into what Canary covering and what we're covering and sort of what the next evolution of climate tech looks like. Um, so I, I was really interested in this report that came out from the International Energy Agency, or it was a preview of the report, this World Energy Outlook that comes out, and it's this big annual assessment of the global energy system. And in this preview... IEA says that peak fossil fuels are coming by the end of the decade, and that's thanks to the huge surge in renewables and batteries and EVs. But even with this, uh, you know, trillion-dollar level investment each year, we're nowhere near where we need to be for uh, keeping temperatures at 1.5 degrees Celsius. Um, it also gets us actually still dangerously close to two degrees Celsius warming, and so that really that leads us to ask, what's the next gear of decarbonization? Because we have to see massive investments in uh, not just wind, solar, and batteries, but you know, advanced grid tech to make them more valuable, long-duration storage, carbon removal, other forms of materials innovation. And that activity is really picking up. And it's why a conference like RE+, which has its deep roots in the solar industry, has expanded to include these Technology. So we just thought it would be interesting to recap that event because it does tell us about like where the industry is evolving to grapple with these commercial frontiers of clean energy. So, so Julian, over to you first that you've attended a lot of these events. How have you seen this focus expand and what do you think it says about how the industry is evolving?
1: Totally. Well, it, it started as really a, a solar show. So it was solar power international or SPI for, for many years and, um, gathering of, you know, rooftop installers and, and people hawking different panels and, and saying they got the most efficient panel and all that kind of thing. Um, and now it's really become just the, the full range of, of the clean energy industry. And they changed it to RE plus to, to sort of signify its renewable energy plus, I guess, whatever else you can imagine. Um, and I mean, the main thing that was most palpable is just the the scale of it now. So they were saying about 40,000 people, which, um, you know, there, there was already a surge last year because it, it came a few weeks after the Inflation Reduction Act passed. Uh, and you could feel that energy on the floor in uh, Anaheim, which is uh a, a much tougher um city to have to be in for for work in my opinion than Las Vegas um but uh i think it's roughly double now what it was say 2 shows ago and they had two entire expo halls uh, full of people showing off their their solar and their batteries and uh electric vehicle charging and electric vehicles and uh, all all those gadgets um it was almost too big to Really navigate like I kept hearing there. I I heard Tesla was in there somewhere, and I went looking for Tesla. I could never find it, and uh, you know, it's big enough to get lost in. Um, And you know, so if that's some sort of leading indicator, it's just showing that the this central kind of industry conference for clean energy is is taken off, and there's there's more companies participating, more products, you know, more people working on it uh, than we've ever seen before.
3: Yeah, I mean, first of all. I've never been to Vegas before. I've never been to RE Plus before. So I was totally overwhelmed, totally lost most of the, <laughs> most of the conference. It was, it was, I mean, I heard just anecdotally of so many people just missing meetings because it was impossible to, to navigate between just the sheer number of people that were there, which was again a leading indicator and and um pretty exciting. Um and I it's funny to to recall the fact that it used to be a solar trade show because I had, I think, one conversation about solar the whole time I was there. I actually ended up doing a bit of a crash course accidentally in in batteries and long duration energy storage sp- specifically. Stephen, I think you you it was you who wrote in 2014, um, storage is the new solar, and we've talked about that that concept um, in the last couple of months. And based on what I saw at RE+, it seems like that assessment just rings truer than ever. Um, There there was just a a lot of conversation about how different storage technologies are vying to prove their worth right now. Um, And I spoke with Julia Souter; She's the CEO of the Long-Duration Energy Storage Council. And she said that she's just anticipating that their number of of members will peak shortly because right now they have many, many members. But she anticipates that as the industry matures, battery companies start merging, buying one another out. There'll just be this era of consolidation, and it's, it's seemingly just around the corner, which I think is what happened in solar about a decade ago. So, Julian, you moderated a, a great panel on long-duration energy storage specifically. Was that your impression as well, that there's just— Ton of these companies that are really excited about this technology.
1: Yeah, and and that that was where uh, you you sort of emerged from the crowd and, and found me afterwards, which was good because otherwise there's no way to <laughs> really track anyone <laughs> down in the in the in the the masses there. Um, so yeah, I, I ended up moderating a couple different panels that were like fairly technical presentations from a. Like seven or eight different uh, long-duration energy storage companies, Um, and you know, for a technical thing, like it was, it was standing room only in that room. Like I, I was not expecting people to be cramming in and like standing up against all the walls to kind of hear hear the latest info on these, you know, fairly obscure technologies. So, so these are the companies trying to make some sort of battery or storage device that. Uh, can cheaply very very cheaply store clean energy for hours and hours, um, you know which is way beyond what uh is economical with lithium ion batteries right now, which can do you know generally like four hours they could go more, but people don't tend to build them for super long uh use cases because of the the cost um and you know so this has been a kind of a long simmering section of the clean energy industry in part because it's it's hard, like, s- s- hardware. Like, it, it takes years to really take an idea from the lab and then turn it into a product and then get it out in, in the field operating. Um, and then there hasn't really been a market for it because, uh, you know, it's it's kind of anticipating this future state where the grid is 70%, 80% renewable, and then you really need some way to... to Store all that and and shift it into like the nighttime uh, or or times when the renewables aren't happening. So the the key distinction I saw this year is like all these companies actually have real utility contracts to to talk about now, Um, and that's that's huge. Like so, for, for a while it was always oh we got this tiny little pilot. And then this utility is going to study it for five years. It's going to be awesome, and that's just so far removed from any real commercial traction that it was hard to like judge who who was like legit and stuff. And and now, uh, you know, I was writing about ESS with this Iron Flow technology is is delivering to Sacramento's municipal utility um, something on the order of like two two gigawatt hours over a course of several years, and they've started the initial installations there. Um, there's an Italian company called Energy Dome that has like a big kind of balloon of of carbon dioxide to store energy. And they're uh, already operating a megawatt scale project and, and at work on a, a much bigger one for utility customers. So it, the, the story was not, hey, we're going to like test this out and and prove it. It's like, Oh, we did that. We got a utility to say yes and now we're we're actually working on constructing uh pretty pretty large scale projects um going forward.
0: Yeah, I can remember in the mid 2000s when some of the first like large utility scale projects like of the scale that we know today we're getting signed and when those contracts started to come in it just felt like oh my gosh solar is hitting this new inflection point and it feels like we're getting there with some of these more emerging technologies um jeff you weren't at re plus you weren't in vegas which is probably why you look freshest among all of us Uh, but but you've you know you've hey
1: don't don't give me away to the the (laughs)
0: listers see (laughs) yeah god steven (laughs) y'all look great uh, yes,
2: you all do look fantastic. Uh,
0: what's your perspective on on where these frontiers are emerging?
2: Well, I mean, uh, thanks, Stephen, Julian, and Lisa have covered what's on the table and, and RE plus and how it's really expanded. And I, I think the you know overarching logic here is to make carbon free electricity uh, as cheaply and ubiquitously as possible, and then electrify absolutely everything we can. To uh, reduce the carbon impact of everything from transport to building heating, um, obviously, you know, uh, electrifying transport cars, vans, buses, trucks. There's a really interesting test run going on of a bunch of freight hauls running on uh, electric trucks happening in California and New York, and they're they're getting up to you know 400 miles. Uh, per delivery on a single charge. Uh, This is possible and it's happening. Building heating, homes, apartments, office buildings, uh, even lower temperature industrial process heat, maybe even higher temperature industrial process heat can be electrified. Julian's covered a couple companies that are working on that, like Antora uh, and uh, Rondo Energy. And of course, the grid to get there, we're going to have to build out enormous amounts of new high voltage transmission, but we're also going to have to beef up the low voltage distribution grids that carry power to end consumers and get all the interconnection and interplay of all that distributed solar and batteries and electric vehicles You can maybe do bi-directional charging um, to get those what could add up to be hundreds of gigawatts of behind the meter you know customer connected resources up and running to balance all that big green stuff that's being hooked up and uh you can do that a lot more cheaply, it turns out, when you're tapping into stuff that people are buying anyway. So that's that's a major trend, well, a number of trends that are kind of intersecting. And of course, you know, where you don't have green electrons, you're going to need green molecules of some kind, and this means primarily green hydrogen. And so, of course, you know, at, at Canary, we've been doing our best to cover this uh, hydrogen uh, economy that seems to be emerging, trying to separate the uh, hydrogen hype cycle from the uh, kind of bona fide needs for some kind of energy carrier to replace the fossil fuels that we use for so much activity today. Um, There's a lot of risk here, you know, in creating kind of perverse incentives for greenwashing fossil fuels, but there's also clear and consistent evidence that we definitely need something. uh, And hydrogen is the thing at present for high temperature heat, for making cement, making steel, to replace fossil fuels for chemicals and fertilizer, and to provide some kind of carbon-free fuel for heavy transport, shipping, aviation. So this is the kind of scope of of activity that we're trying to cover. And um, it's pretty daunting. For sure. And
0: I mean, a a lot of these like technology and integration challenges, these are live wire challenges now. These are not challenges that are coming a decade from now. These are things that we have to figure out right away uh, as the grids get saturated with renewables, as we have to figure out more valuable ways to uh, turn that renewable electricity into usable energy. And uh, this, I mean, it's, it's like, these are conversations that are live and happening right now. Um so, so Elisa and Julian, what what are these like? Are there any areas that feel coming out of the event like they have the most momentum? Were there any kind of emerging sectors that you that you outlined that felt the most pressing?
3: Yeah. Well, I also wanted to flag that VPPs just seemed like the word on everyone's yeah, lips. Yeah, virtual power there plants. Was this, yes, virtual power plants, um, and honestly, maybe in competition for the the title of The Next Solar. Um, I went to the unveiling of the DOE's Pathway to Commercial Liftoff for Virtual Power Plants report, which I think has been long awaited. And the people were really loving it. I was waiting out. I, I arrived kind of uncharacteristically like 20 minutes early, and it ended up being the best thing I could have done because there was this, like, Line that stretched all the way down the hall and around the corner of people trying to get into this thirty-minute presentation that was in kind of a small conference room, and people kept coming up to us, to those of us who were at the front of the line, and saying, "Wait, this is for the VPP report, really?" And the room ended up being totally packed, and it was a pretty—I mean, they just went kind of went over the executive summary of the report. It was Jen Downing of the DOE who who did the presentation. And it was it was fairly technical. I mean, it outlined kind of how tripling the current rate of VPPs could, and I quote, support rapid electrification while redirecting grid spending from peaker plants to participants and reducing overall grid costs. And it's a great report. I recommend people read it. But I think just the sheer enthusiasm of the participants was really my my main takeaway. It was just – it was – I mean, it was like there was a rock star in the room. People were really lining up. I
1: was going to say, that sounds like a a concert, rock concert, but it's, (laughs) it's a technical report on virtual power plant. (laughs) Scaling <laughs> <laughs>
3: exactly, well,
0: and frankly, that's why we're talking about this because I think that when you go to in-person events like this, particularly with tens of thousands of people, and you see like where people's attention is getting directed, it t- does tell you something about where the interest and where potential money is moving in the industry. Um, and and Jigger Shaw, uh, you know, former co-host of, of the Energy Gang, a friend of the pod, uh, who runs the DOE's uh, Loan Programs Office, told Nico Johnson of Suncast, um, I saw this quote that. The solar industry is now the VPP industry. And going back to your point about that 2014 story that I wrote about storage being the new solar, that was like the beginning of the era where everybody was – thinking about, like, how do we attach batteries to as much as possible? And now we are at the stage where batteries are getting attached to a ton of solar, both residential and um, in utility scale. And the question is, what do you do with that? And we are now squarely in the virtual power plant era of the solar industry. Uh, Julian, why don't you close it out?
1: Yeah, well, actually, my my answer is very much tied to this. So uh, I just saw this... uh, total pro- proliferation of uh residential energy storage uh product options which um you know not every virtual power plant needs a battery but they're certainly uh much more effective and and powerful if they have a battery to to store solar power from the roof and then be able to to use it really whenever whenever it's most valuable um and for a while you know this was kind of Tesla's market like everyone knew what the powerwall was and then there were a few other uh, companies really chipping away at it over the years who also had good products, but just never had that kind of scale. Um, and now walking through those two massive expo halls, it, it just seemed like every other, every other booth had some sort of box of residential batteries that they were selling. Um, and some of them were actually brands like people know, <laughs> which is different. There's kind of uh, the very anonymous ones that have something like energy or grid in their name. And they, they're very like, they all blend together. But then we saw like Duracell. There was a, now a, a a home battery that looks like a big Duracell battery. And then the um, Energizer uh, and then a newer company, Anchor, which is like hugely popular for the sort of mobile battery packs to charge your phone and stuff. And so they have a lot of experience making consumer-facing products with batteries. Now they've designed their own, um, you know, home battery. And um, it's just kind of a whole new world where instead of having that whole market dependent on like how many units Tesla feels like shipping this quarter, um, there's now seemingly not going to be any real constraint on the supply of battery packs to homes. And then it just becomes a question of like, do all of these companies thrive? Like, why would you pick a sort of random brand out there when you could get a a Duracell or a or an Energizer? And and how much does the brand name uh, really matter? Uh, it, it turns out the the Duracell and the and the Energizer are actually kind of licensed, so it's it it's not a, it's not like directly those companies manufacturing it, but they you know they have to. Maintain a level of quality to like keep that license. Um, So maybe that's going to excite people who didn't otherwise, you know, really care about the the home battery sector.
4: Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the US solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com slash events or click the link in the show notes.
0: All right, so let's turn our attention to the battery recycling boom. Boom. America's seen about $50 billion of battery manufacturing announcements in the last year, and that could amount to around 1,000 gigawatt hours of production of lithium-ion capacity by the end of the decade. And battery recyclers are getting in on the action increasingly. They're riding this wave of concern about security of supply chains, about the environmental cost of -of end-of-life batteries and the spike in commodity prices that we saw after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And in the last few weeks, we've seen some pretty big investments in this space. Um, Jeff and Julian have both been reporting on this. So uh, Redwood Materials, the battery recycling company founded by former Tesla CTO JB Straubel, pulled in a billion dollars in venture funding. That brings the company's total fundraise to $2 billion. And they've got a supplemental $2 billion uh, conditional loan guarantee from the Department of Energy and Ascend Elements, another recycling company that won a $480 million grant to construct a factory in Kentucky just pulled in uh, more than half a billion dollars in venture investment. And so this combination of private investment and government backing is suddenly making battery recycling very hot climate tech sector. And so I want to figure out where is this going to fit into the overall set of investments in domestic battery production. And Jeff, you covered both the Redwood and Ascend funding stories. So what are those companies uniquely doing?
2: Yeah, well, Stephen, I think there are two key factors to consider here. There's there's circularity and there's scale. In terms of circularity, both Redwood and Ascent are committed not just to cost-effectively breaking down spent batteries to their constituent mi- minerals and materials, but also cost-effectively converting those to the precursor and drop-in engineered components that make up batteries, things like anode foil or cathode active materials. And this requires kind of this increasingly tight integration with the battery manufacturers they're working with. But it's also kind of a, a, a necessary chain or link in the chain of kind of making battery recycling a Fully integrated part of the process by which batteries themselves can can scale up in, in terms of their capacity, and then in terms of scale, you know, we can't have recycling without batteries. But I guess the question everyone's asking is, can we have batteries without recycling? I mean, we're we're talking about billions and billions of dollars of capital investment in recycling capacity to match tens of billions of dollars of capital investment in battery production capacity. You can only recycle as many batteries as are getting reused, but right now, Redwood and Ascent are uh, recycling a lot of the scrap that comes out of factories, the stuff that doesn't get turned into batteries for one reason or another, um, and they can recycle from a multitude of, of sources. And the amount of material, primary material or kind of engineered material that can go into new batteries is limited, obviously, by the input stream of spent batteries you're getting in. I think estimates of that range from a relatively low percentage of the total that you're going to need to make batteries by like 2030, 2040, to some folks are saying they're higher. But I think it's important to remember that the the marginal value of this recycled material chain is pretty important. I mean, if you can lock down a certain amount of stuff that's coming in from the recycling uh, players into your supply, that's going to cushion you against the kind of price spikes and supply uncertainties that come from trying to source stuff that's being mined around the world and perhaps being mined and processed in countries that have problematic trade relations with the United States.
0: Uh, Julian, so this is an area you've focused extensively on and uh, you've covered both of these companies. So why so much attention on this space suddenly? Like what are the factors contributing to the surge of investment?
1: Yeah, I think the surge of investment into battery recycling is is very much tied up in this whole broader industrial planning and, and strategy that's unfurled since the Inflation Reduction Act, um, and and the infrastructure bill had some like battery critical materials um, provisions in it. But basically, uh, as we've covered, there's this boom of of battery factories. Popping up at at scale, you know, gigafactories just all across the US. Um, or rather, they're really clustered in the southeast and in the kind of Rust Belt areas and some in Arizona. Um, but you know, now that we're actually switching from importing almost all our battery cells that we use to making, you know, a, a substantial chunk of them, um, suddenly the the scrap is flowing already. So, you know, there there's kind of the cliche about, oh, like, Recycling is hard because you got to wait the ten or fifteen years for the the car batteries to actually deplete enough to need to be recycled, and that's really not the case. It's when you're setting up a factory, you're producing all kinds of scrap while you calibrate the line, and and that's battery metals and materials that are need to go somewhere first, and then it would just be a total waste to 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 not take them and turn them back into new batteries. Um, so you, you're seeing the recyclers cluster very close to the manufacturers um, for the large part, like Redwood going into, I mean, they started in Nevada near the Gigafactory from Tesla. Um, now they're going into South Carolina to be near all the the new battery factories and EV factories over there. Um, Ascend, I've, I visited their um, facility outside of Atlanta and got to see them take in battery packs and reduce them to this Pulverized, you know, black powder called the, the black mass that goes on to be processed um, at, at, at a different facility that's being built. Um, so yeah, it's it's part of this kind of uh, new flourishing of, of American clean energy manufacturing um, and you know industrial clusters where that's happening. Um, and then just overall, I, I think for, there is this kind of persistent myth that uh electric vehicles are, are a problem because you, you can't recycle the battery like you, you hear people say that um and no we we can it, it's just one of these kind of low-hanging fruits where no one really bothered to do it 10 or 20 years ago because there wasn't this intense demand for for battery materials um now as we've seen there's huge demand for battery materials and consequently billions of dollars are flowing into recycling so i think that's a that's a trend I see over and over again in the climate solutions world is some problem that seems big and intractable is actually just viewed that way because no one, no one took a serious swing at it yet. And then once you actually try, suddenly um, the, the traction can kind of like show up like pretty quickly.
3: Well, coming off of our conversation about startups in the long duration storage space, I'm wondering if these huge investments feel like They're also kind of a symptom of the desire to reduce our reliance on foreign sources of lithium and other battery materials. Obviously, we're going to still need to be relying on foreign sources of lithium. The U.S. is just not equipped to produce as much as we will need to kind of sate the appetite for EV batteries. But do you think that the COVID pandemic, the supply chain problems, the invasion of Ukraine, and just the way that geopolitics have informed... Our ability to procure lithium for these batteries. Do you think that has informed um, innovation in recycling, or was this kind of surge in investment inevitable, kind of regardless?
1: I think the, there's definitely a geopolitical component to it, um, and you know, for all our success in spinning up new battery factories, uh, so far we've done very little to to spin up new U.S. based uh, mining of the the raw minerals there. Um, so, yeah, there is this element of if if we're getting batteries, you know, from overseas uh in most of our cars now and then able to recycle those locally in the US, it's kind of like pulling in the minerals from around the world, but then they keep recirculating within the US for as long as we keep recycling them. Um and all these all the recyclers are very Uh, explicit about their desire to kind of like reduce the need for, for the original mining for, for new batteries. Um, And, you know, it'll be a long time before we're able to recycle enough to actually fully meet our, our demand, which is growing precipitously at the same time. Um, But yeah, I mean, in, in theoretical terms, like every battery made out of recycled materials is a battery you didn't need to go out and mine somewhere in the world. And, um, you know, much better for carbon emissions too. Like it's, it's a lot cleaner to get a recycled battery, you know, than to go out and dig something out of the earth and refine it and do all those processes. So um yeah, it's definitely kind of like nudging us in a more, um, you know, self-sufficient direction as a country. Uh, But it'll be, it'll be a long slog before it's ever like competing with mining as kind of the, the, the feed source for, for the new battery construction.
2: Yeah, I mean, there are some statistics on this. The Resell Center is a battery recycling consortium led by the U.S. Department of Energy. They did some research that says you can get a ton of battery-grade lithium out of 750 tons of lithium brine, 250 tons of lithium ore, or 28 tons of recycled lithium-ion batteries. So think about 10x the scale if you can mine the batteries, so to speak, rather than mining the the earth. The real trick is uh, how are you going to get everyone involved in the uh, process of taking a spent battery out of a car and putting it in a landfill somewhere to see that it's worth their while to turn it around and get it to the recycling center instead? And the economics are one thing, but the regulations are another. And I, I think there's a lot of agreement in Uh, the uh, kind of environmental and economic analyst community that we need to make uh, regulations that make trashing batteries or sending them to China to be recycled, which is where a lot of recycling happens today, much less attractive than uh, spending what it takes to collect them, transport them to where they can be recycled and then reprocessed.
0: So how solvable is this problem? I mean, you guys talked about the scale. So we need to sort of 10x the scale to match... um... Mining if we're mining battery waste, but like do you think that the problem of battery waste is solvable?
1: I, yeah, I guess I don't see why not. Um, I, I think one thing to watch out for is some process you know there's a whole bunch of different technical processes for recycling. Some of them produce their own byproducts, like uh, sodium sulfate is kind of this uh, byproduct that comes from some of the the recycling. Um, which is just like a inert kind of thing that you have to dispose of. Um, but others are are a little cleaner and and kind of get the metals without, uh, producing too much pollution. I mean, the, the old version of battery recycling was you chuck it in a furnace and burn off like most of the ingredients and get some like nickel slag out of there. And that was really bad for the environment. So you, you know, you, you want to do the, do the work and make sure you're not creating any sort of new unintended uh, environmental byproducts by by your recycling technique. But, um, you know, I think we're seeing batteries being recycled. Like it's not a, it's not a impossible f- physical feat to do. And the scale of the billions of dollars going into it means this is like definitely one of the most well-resourced uh, sectors in the, in the clean tech area right now. Um, so yeah, I'd say there's a lot of, a lot of momentum and, you know, huge factories already opening up. Uh, so it's it seems to be doing the right things that you'd want to see.
2: Yeah. I think it's also important to make it uh, more profitable to do the right thing than to do the wrong thing and to set up the structures that kind of will allow companies to verify those uh, actions. You know, a lot of folks say that the European Union's battery passport concept of, uh, having a, uh, essentially a digitally trackable kind of bill of goods for every single piece of material that's going into a battery. I think that starts in 2026 is a policy that the U.S. could emulate as well. And then, of course, getting the money in up front to invest in the capital plant that you're going to need to recycle a volume of batteries that just isn't there yet. I, that's why LPO, I think, is putting so much money uh, behind some of these uh, battery recyclers, including Redwood Materials and Lifecycle for its New York recycling facility. you got to get these things, quote-unquote, bankable by private investors by priming the pump and providing some early support.
0: All right, let's move on to our, our third story. So it's been about six weeks since surprise wildfires devastated Lahaina, Maui, and local officials are still working to identify all the dead in the city. And Hawaiian Electric is also facing lawsuits for keeping the power on during dry, windy conditions. And it's an echo of the PG&E fiasco after the 2018 campfire. It has overshadowed another big energy story in Hawaii. Uh, a year ago, Hawaii closed its largest source of generation, this coal plant on Oahu that provided 11% of the state's electricity. And um, The goal was to replace all that generation with solar and batteries as part of this overall statewide effort to get 100% renewables on the grid by 2045 and Julian was on this show talking about his trip to Oahu he was there last year to witness the transition and tackle the big questions it raised um and you know the 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 big question wasn't necessarily can renewables and batteries fill in the gap it's can they do it fast enough and um you know all these other concerns about execution timing land use community engagement how would they impact what's going to happen there. And so it turns out that, um, you know, not the worst case scenario didn't play out, but like the uh, close to the worst case scenario, there were no outages or anything, but prices went up and, and there, you know, there were challenges and there still are challenges. So Ju- Julian, why don't you give us a sense of what has happened over the last year? You traveled to Hawaii, you witnessed this phase out, there was a lot of celebration and trepidation from local officials.
1: Uh, what happened? yeah the reason that I was so fascinated by this story is everywhere else in the in the u s when we shut down coal plants uh we spun up fossil gas plants and just burned a a different slightly cleaner fossil fuel um but Hawaii doesn't have a supply of natural gas for the power sector there so this, as far as I know, is the only state in the country where they were attempting to to jump from coal power to Purely new, clean solar batteries, renewables, um, and you know that's that's hugely important as a proof point for like the world because there's a ton of coal out there still. Uh, if everywhere in the world decides they need to spin up a ton of gas capacity uh, to replace their their coal, like we're going to have too many fossil fuels being burned uh, in the coming decades. So um, I went to I went to Oahu, you know Honolulu, and um, uh, it's been a few trips now, so I, I was there last year. Saw them shut down the coal plant, flipped on my lights in the morning, and, and they came on. There was no no loss of power or anything. Um, and then I went back this summer to see you know what had changed in the year uh, since because you know the the when when the power did go off, they actually didn't have most of the solar plants built yet that were supposed to replace it. Um, and in a year, uh, not a ton had changed. Um, so this developer, Clearway, um, was able to get, they they got one solar battery project up before the coal plant shut down. They got another one a few months later. Um, but all the other ones that Hawaiian Electric had, had contracted for are, are still being built. And some have just been canceled entirely. Um, and so it's it's a bit messy, because generally, if you're trying to replace your largest source of power, you want to have a replacement before you lose the one you have. And it didn't quite work out that way. Um, now, granted, there were a few, probably like, Factors no one could have predicted, namely like the COVID pandemic and uh, that really screwed up supply chains for for solar and batteries. Um, and, you know, a lot of the projects got delayed just because they literally couldn't get their hands on the batteries they had ordered and, and you know, put down money for. So that's not, you know, on the developers per se, uh, like the, nothing they could have done about that, that the, the other big... Uh, global event was Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which um, sent oil prices spiking, and the uh, majority of, of power in Hawaii uh, is still from burning oil, actually, because that's what you can ship in. So it's kind of this perfect storm of, you know, Hawaiian Electric gave out the contracts for these clean energy ones in the summer of 2020. They knew the coal plant had to shut down September of uh, last year, um, so 2022. Uh and just in that interval too many of those projects slipped slipped their schedules and 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 or, or realized they couldn't actually deliver the the thing they promised so uh, i i think there's a few lessons uh one is you know i guess you got to just expect unexpected when you're planning for the energy transition like uh the world's crazy there's unexpected things happening all the time now um having too tight a timeline to build a, a large and wide-ranging portfolio of renewables and storage is probably risky. So you know, it's like build in extra, um, and then uh, there's some other lessons on like centralized versus distributed energy that that we could get into too if you're into that.
3: Yeah, I'm I'm really interested in um, the use of of DERs, distributed energy resources, especially. You wrote in these great pieces. Um that one of the reasons Hawaii avoided outages was because there were a hundred thousand rooftop solar systems in Hawaii. So when these big solar um and big renewables projects were off schedule, Hawaii and these the, the utility could rely on the energy from the the rooftop solar systems and the, the, the batteries that they've been paired with. So can you talk a little bit about how DER has proved valuable during the this transition from coal to renewables in Hawaii? yeah
1: the, the distributed solar ended up being one of the heroes of this story um so you know it's very sunny in hawaii i don't know if you've heard that there's uh they, they were really like a an early leader in getting rooftop solar installed it, and it went so uh fast so so it was such a vibrant market that um the utility like had to come for it you know they they were one of the first states to like strip away Net metering um, back in 2015, and kind of make it much harder for people to go solar. But now there's been kind of a swing back where, when the large scale renewables were were not coming through because you know all, all the all the sort of issues you face on the mainland too of like land constraints and getting community buy in, and then just like it's it's just tougher to build big things than to build little things on someone's. Roof, so the uh, the regulators and the and the kind of state energy leaders, when they saw where things were headed going into the coal shutdown, ended up activating the distributed solar sector, and they spun up very very quickly, like super fast as far as utility regulations go. This thing called battery bonus, and the idea is all the people who already had solar and net metering could just buy a battery and install it and promised to like send power back to the grid for two hours every night during the evening peak window. Um and they would get paid thousands of dollars. Like it's it's a real bonus. Um so you get cash in your pocket, uh you get rewarded for adding this battery. And and now instead of the solar being uh you know something you might consider a nuisance because it's just flooding the grid at noon, it's it's shifting it to the hours when they they desperately need uh, additional power and, and clean power specifically. Um, so yeah, within a year, they got, uh, close to like 30 megawatts of capacity out of all this. Um, which makes it definitely one of the largest aggregations of home battery capacity in the country. Um, and I think there's, it's, it's just pretty impressive. Like it, it was kind of this all hands on deck push from the policy sector. They created this. Very, very quickly, and then when the money's right, and you know people see the the value of participating, they responded um and you know it's just been a year really since that went live, and they're trying to get a bit more by by this fall I think forty megawatts is the is the goal um but yeah, that's definitely been playing a role in in the lights staying on, and they're not actually being any like uh bad <laughs> bad things happening on the grid.
0: Speaking of the surprising and nonlinear nature of the energy transition, Hawaii going from really concerned about solar overloading the grid to using that in a pinch to prevent outages when shutting down this coal plant. Um, uh, I mean, most people have said in the solar industry for the last 15 years that like solar can be a really valuable resource. Uh, But Properly managing that solar is, is critical. And we're now in a, a place where we have the battery and the control systems to make them super valuable on the grid. So what a transition that's been, huh, Jeff? You know, you I remember you were covering the Hawaii uh, solar story when when there were concerns about it uh, completely
2: overloading the grid. Well, I, I remember there was a presentation uh, that Dora Nakafuji at, at uh, Hawaiian Electric put out, uh, you know how California is the duck curve where... All that rooftop solar, you know, brings down the net demand on the grid real low, and then it spikes in the evening when solar goes away. And Cal- in Hawaii, they had the Nessie curve, which is like the duck curve except it goes underwater per se. Uh, you know that that midday solar is actually exporting more power uh, than the grid as a whole might need, and. That's a big problem for utilities who are trying to manage those distribution circuits. They weren't made to take power going the other direction. You got to kind of reconfigure a bunch of equipment there. But if you can just shift that production from that belly uh, to that neck, you know, that time in the evening when all the solar going away, all the load remains, you got it this enormously valuable resource. And, you know, I guess... Necessity is the mother of invention. Hawaii has to deal with this on its own. It's an, a bunch of islands; they can't get power from anywhere else, and land is limited. That's a lot different from continental grids. But the same logic is driving, you know, changes in the mainland. I, California's, you know, change from a net metering system to a net billing system, which really radically reduced the value of solar that's fed back onto the grid, is definitely uh, a controversial policy, but its its primary idea of getting people to add batteries to their solar systems and save that power for when California's grid really needs it, usually like 7 to 9 p.m. on hot summer evenings, is something that the grid needs. And right now, you know, California is looking at instituting community solar. And one of the ideas is putting a bunch of community solar plus batteries or or as one developer told me community storage plus solar since you need batteries (laughs) to make this pencil out you know you put that on a bunch of rooftops and warehouses in west la and you could have enough peak grid capacity to solve the problem that california has where they have been unable to shut down these coastal gas fired power plants which they're supposed to cut down uh, they're supposed to shut down for a a number of reasons having to do with you know Ocean water and uh, local pollution, um, and, and you can fit this stuff in and get it interconnected uh, in the places you need it and on the timelines you need it. It's really getting increasingly hard to get big utility scale stuff interconnected to the transmission grid in California and around the country. Um, so yeah, you you, you got to look everywhere you can. There's there's room for uh, and a need for solutions of every scale.
1: And I think what Oahu did so successfully was show what can happen if you switch from looking at rooftop solar as as a problem or as an obstacle and and instead look at it as a, a tool to achieve your clean energy goals. Um so, you know, there's there's more solar capacity on rooftops in Hawaii than in utility scale projects. Um and that was sitting there, but it you know it hadn't been fully optimized for for the the highest need on the on the grid um but you know now everyone's winning and uh, so I think that's something you would you would hope that California policymakers are thinking, huh, like we have the biggest rooftop solar market how How can we make that as useful for achieving our our peak uh demand as as possible?" and i don't think you can really make an argument that the policy they came up with to replace net metering foregrounds that uh, it it seemed like it was more how do you solve the problem of solar customers saving too much money <laughs> um and they solved that problem if you think that's a problem but um there's so much more that you could do if you were able to leverage really all the all the the megawatts that are are sitting there you know not being directed and and turn it into a more of an evening, you know, post-sunset resource.
0: All right, we're going to close out the show now with a segment that we are calling The Forecast. We're going to take a brief look at some stories that give us a preview of the future. Uh, Lisa, what's your story? What's your forecast?
3: Yeah, so I was really interested to see that Amazon has finally made a carbon removal commitment This news came out last week. Um, The company is investing in direct air capture from an Occidental subsidiary project called 1.5. So Amazon is committing to purchase 250,000 tons of removal credits over 10 years, which is honestly a fairly standard amount as far as these commitments go, and is just a drop in the bucket, to be clear, compared to what's needed. But what's really interesting to me is the fact that it took this long. So most of Amazon's competitors companies like Shopify and Stripe and Meta and Alphabet and and hugely Microsoft, um, which made a very comparable but even larger commitment also just two weeks ago, Um, they've made much more significant commitments, and they started making those commitments over a year ago. And a year is actually just a really long time in terms of climate action by these big corporations. So on the one hand, I'm thinking, what took so long? But on the other hand, I feel like carbon removal is maybe entering a new and more mainstream phase if Amazon is finally getting on board. And there's also the fact that this partnership is between Amazon and an Occidental subsidiary. I think there's this real tension in carbon removal right now where the companies that can actually afford to invest in this technology and the companies that have the technical know-how to manage carbon, to develop the technology— are also some of the world's biggest emitters. So they've emitted this carbon, and now they're paying to remove it. And it's kind of this self-perpetuating cycle.
0: Yeah. I mean, ultimately, though, I I think it's in a positive development that these large corporates are committing to um, buying credits from these carbon removal projects. And uh, it probably says that Amazon hasn't stepped in. There are probably a couple reasons for this. One is that you know it takes team of people who can evaluate these projects uh, appropriately, and there are just not that many projects, so there are not that many credits on the market. And um, and I, I think that the the engineered carbon removal space is still so tiny relative to the amount of um, carbon credits that are on the market. Uh, but it is a, it's a good development, um, certainly with a number of. Uh, contradictions and challenges, but that's a good story. Julian, what do you got?
1: Yeah, so my uh, forecast, it's actually an old uh, article that has to do with the future. Um, So uh, do you know how old the oldest tree living in the world is?
0: Uh, I'm going to say a thousand years old.
1: Okay, so uh, I went to see it over the weekend outside of Las Vegas, um, 4,800 years old. Whoa. There's a grove of, they're called bristlecone pine trees uh, on the White Mountains, which is kind of like between the eastern Sierra and then the Nevada Basin and Range desert. Um, and yeah, I was like, needed a little change of pace after the the craziness of, of the conference we were talking about. And I'd read this article called The Vanishing Groves by uh, Ross Anderson. And this actually came out over a decade ago, but I, I knew him when he, he came to the Atlantic as the, the science health technology editor. And um, I'd read it back then and was like, I, I think I want to find these trees. So they um, they survive because they're up on this super high 10,000 foot mountain. It's super dry. It's windy. Nothing else can live up there. So they love it because they can like, they're just hardier than everything else. Uh, and, and no one else can compete up there, except now climate change raising temperatures. Um, uh, there's a real threat that it'll bring pests and bring, you know, change the conditions that have sort of been this perfect, uh, spot for trees to live for 4,000 years. Um, so, um, it's an amazing, really, really thoughtful article, but w- what it gets at is like, these these trees have been like living records of like the climate for the past 4000 years and dendrochronology is the science of like studying those tree rings to understand how the climate is progressing so in a way they're they're like the original um kind of climate journalists they've been observing and and recording uh for you know since the time that the pyramids were getting built uh and and that basically just left me with this kind of mind blowing question of like what what happens if One of these saplings I walked by uh, is alive in four thousand years. Like, what world are we giving those trees? Will they? Will we allow them to to live to their fullest potential, uh, or or not? Um, So I I definitely found myself like almost kind of trying to talk to the trees and be like, okay, we're working on it. Uh, I don't know, I don't know yet if we've if we've done what we need to do, but like we're 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 trying to make something happen so y'all can keep growing up here on this mountaintop.
0: Wow, that's a good story. I think the only other thing that could last four thousand years are the petroleum-based plastic palm trees that you see uh, all over Las Vegas and the casinos. Show <laughs> sure you guys in of those. <laughs> they might.
1: They might. I. I don't know. Plastic falls apart too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, uh, <laughs> I've, I've seen that. Yeah. I don't know if those ones are as useful to science. <laughs>
2: Jeff, what's your forecast? Uh, well,
1: I. Ha-
2: I'm going to talk about a story that I haven't written yet, but which is kind of taking place as we speak. Which is this run on less electric depot project it's uh by an outfit called the north american council for freight efficiency they basically uh study trucks and how you make them more efficient and they're running a bunch of tests with a bunch of electric trucks including the tesla semi um out of uh, depots in california new york and vancouver british columbia Um, and they're getting some really interesting data out of them including Uh, showings of being able to run 400 miles on a single charge uh, delivering freight and being able to run multiple routes a day with, with, with fairly short recharging needs, which is, I think, really important for folks to digest. All this data is available on the Run on Less Electric Depot page, and you can actually track individual trucks in the uh, distances are running and how their batteries are depleting and how their charge cycles are going. It's really interesting, and I think it does prove that short-haul kind of uh, run-and-return type trips are totally electrifiable now, and that maybe even some of the longer-haul freight routes um, are, are totally possible, in the realm of possibility. Um, we're going to have to see how Quickly, the electric truck makers are going to be able to scale up production, and how quickly all these depots are going to be able to get the grid service they need to actually charge all these trucks. Those are some key barriers, um, but right now it's looking really promising, and uh, I think it's a very good, very good window into the future of electrifying some
1: heavy transport on the roads. And I think that's another case where people used to just say, "Oh, yeah, trucking—we can't, we can't do that with batteries. That's too hard." And then people start doing trucking with batteries, and it's like, oh, well, actually, we're getting somewhere.
0: The story that caught my attention was also a battery-based story. I saw the story in Canary Media. I think it was a uh, republished from uh, the Energy News Network about the, Westfield, the West Springfield generating station, which is actually – I'm over in western Massachusetts. It's probably 45 minutes away from where I am. If I'm driving toward Boston, I, I, I pass it. And uh, it's a power plant that was um, – a coal power plant that was started generating in the late 1940s. It was eventually shut down in 2022. And um, you know, the, the local community saw a major loss of uh, tax revenue. There was a question about what to do with the plant. You can't really develop these power plant uh, facilities into anything else but another kind of power plant or industrial facility. And um, the company that operates it, Congentrix, um, a battery storage, a clean energy advocate within the company started working on this project to uh, create a massive battery storage, uh, 45 megawatt, $80 million battery storage project to replace the, the coal plant on the facility with the intention of building it out further. And uh, thanks to Massachusetts Clean Peak Standard here, it supported, financially supported that battery. And so um, yet another large coal power plant will be uh, replaced, and it looks like it'll be a, a a large battery storage system with a potential to expand further, and I think, again, going back to our conversation about frontiers, you know, we are squarely in the battery storage era, and so this may be um, an example of other kinds of uh, peaker facilities or, or, or old uh, power plants that get replaced with batteries or some combination of batteries and renewables. So
1: it's happening from from Hawaii to Massachusetts in other words.
0: Absolutely. Yes, yes. Very similar story to what's happening in Hawaii, although we didn't rely on that that uh, coal plant in the same way that uh, Oahu did. All right, that's going to close out the show. Uh, Lisa Martin Jenkins, Jeff St. John, Julian Spector, thank you all so much. The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You can find many of the stories that we discussed in our show notes. This episode was produced by me with help from Dalba Nabuaje. Sean Marquand is our engineer. Thanks to the folks at The Cutting Room for hosting Lisa Jenkins. Original music came from Echo Finch and Blue Dot Sessions and Postscript Media supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across energy, food and ag, transportation, logistics, advancement materials, manufacturing, and advanced computing. Hook us up with a rating and review wherever you listen to this. Apple and Spotify are the place to do it, uh, where we, we, it helps us get new listeners. So thanks for that. And of course, we would love to hear your opinions on our opinions and analysis. So hit us up on social media. I am Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. Thanks for being here.